Dreams in every country. Dreams, you know we can work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA. Welcome to the ISA's Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture and is brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. We provide full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners, keeping you up to date with new developments in arboriculture. Today's talk is by Angus and Graham McMahon, Angus works full-time for the Shebrook Tree Service, and Graham spent 34 years at Shebrook Tree Service, specializing in large tree removals. This podcast features their talk, Planning Maintenance, Not Removals. It was originally presented at the ISA International Conference in Parramatta, Australia, in July 2011. I would like to discuss the forests of Southeast Australia first, especially for the overseas guests, to get a picture of how that all fits together. I think the previous speaker actually touched on it as well. We're going to look at some case studies of works we have done. Um, these are problems that we've been served up to solve, and it's a, a bit of a look at how they've come about, um, the measures we've had to go to to solve those things. There's a little bit of DVD or video with some of them. And then we'll go into some considerations of the outcomes of uh, planning in, in these forest environments and also in the urban environments where we've got urban sprawl into native forests. There'll be time at the end of this for some discussions and questions and so forth. So the first thing about the native forests that we work in predominantly, we're east of Melbourne in the uh, Dandenong Ranges and it touches into, it's an altitude dependent forest where we work. The mixed species forests are a low altitude uh, forest, there's a, there's a range of species that are involved in that. But as you climb up out of the flat country, the low hills, you wind up in the Regnans forest, which is the mountain ash, and it's an altitude dependent. It relies on altitude and moisture for its survival. The delicatensis, which is the alpine ash, that generally grows in snowbound regions. So when there's heavy winters on the snows there, they're the ones that are able to survive those uh, much colder times at higher altitude. Compared to the altitudes from overseas, we just don't have the higher mountains that some of the other countries do. For us, so it's uh, high altitude species. Above those alpine ash is then the porciflora, which is the snow gums. There's a number of different sorts of snow gums and higher than the snow gums, that is the top of our tree line. So now to mix it up, if we've got uh, a mountain, uh, a western face or a northern face, and a southern side, the mountain ash will tend to grow to uh, lower, lower altitudes on the southern and eastern slopes because they tend to be more sheltered, retain the moisture in the ground, and the northern slopes, uh, you've got to get much higher to actually sustain the mountain ash on them. So for us in, in the southern hemisphere, the north and western slopes of hills won't support those trees until it's much higher. And the same can be said for the alpine ash, delicatensis, 
They tend to survive at higher altitudes again on the northern western faces and go down lower onto the south and eastern slopes. Of course, the floor are the same. If we then follow into the gullies, you might have a gully, a steep gully into the uh, southern and eastern sides. Well, in those gullies, they stay moisture for longer down lower and you'll get fingers of these mountain ash into those gullies as well. So there's an example of mixed species and you might get three generations of trees uh, or in that one forest of the same species. So their regeneration is quite different to things like the mountain ash. And this picture here gives you a good idea of what it's like in a mature mountain ash forest. The climber up there on the side of the tree, uh, that's at about the 170 foot mark, um, just on the first limb sort of area in the head. And you might have nearly another 100 feet ahead above that. But you can see by the openness of the trees, they're, they're a very diff different stature to a lot of lo northern hemisphere trees. The thinning and fire dependence. There's natural thinnings that take place with the forest as they develop, and I'm not telling people something new here, but as the trees grow, the, the lower limbs uh, suppress, and with the rates of growth on the mountain ash, we can achieve a 60 metre tree in 60 years, and they're all fighting for light and becoming dominant above. So the limbs that were grown down lower uh, quickly uh, become dead and uh, are not used to the tree, and they, they are um, shed. Fire, the fire dependence in the Australian bush, um, obviously it's a very topical thing, it's just gone through the 2009 fires. But there's sort of two levels of fire that can go through the Australian bush. One is a hot burn, and obviously the 2009 Black Saturday fires in most places was a very hot burn. It affects the different layers of forest in a different way. If you get a hot burn in an alpine forest, whether it be alpine ash or regnans, it raises the forest to the ground. And I think it was David Attenborough that put it that it, the paradox of the Australian forests at altitude is that they've got to be raised to the ground by fire to be a healthy forest again. So those forests actually uh, grow from th millions of seeds all together to become the new forest. In a mixed species forest, the hot burn, and there's an example of a, uh, a tree here that's a mixed species that's been burnt, obviously. Um, they retain the ability to keep growing most times in the central parts of the trunk, so they're not affected as badly down lower. They have different ways of surviving, and that's why you can get three generations of trees in the one standard forest, whereas the ash grow as one. Cool burns, of course, just clean up all the debris that's been dropped on the ground. They generally chase out defect that's low to the ground. And if they're only a cool burn, the fire doesn't generate through the canopy of the crown where you've got a crown fire which runs of its own accord. So they're an entirely different fire. And a mountain ash fire can survive a cool burn. Storm damage. Um, the defects in the trees um, obviously are the catalyst for things coming out of the ground. The natural thinnings also um, uh, happen progressively, that's what's building up the stuff on the ground. The real problem comes with the human interference. If we've got a native forest in Australia, they're very intolerant to being interfered with. So if we've uh, uh, made a construction of a house and we've, we've got native forest and we jam the house in amongst the native forest, the people put in their front lawn, their driveways, their uh, services, 
absorb some trenches, a bit of lawn for the kids to play on. We've now taken away all the understory and things that make that forest healthy. So the storm damage um, tends to increase, the health of the trees decreases, and it's a real conflict zone for planners to deal with that problem. Because to remove all the trees from an area that people have moved to for a tree change removes the very essence of why they've moved there. And it's that conflict that we're really talking about here. In actual forest visitation, in Victoria, we've got Parks Victoria that are in charge or custodians to the forest environments that people uh, come to, to uh, visit. They expect to be able to go there safely, most of them. And they want to see the essence of the forest to be preserved so they can actually enjoy it, right up to the point that something gives way and uh, causes a problem to them. So again, it's a real paradox for managers to try and uh, create safe visitation to these forested areas, which if we're falling in the forest operations, the first thing we do when we get out of our utes is put our hard hats on. And here we've got picnic tables and walking tracks and gas barbecues and asphalt driveways and parking areas around the base of these forests. The case studies we're going to look at are at a, at a slightly different level again. And that's just a list of the ones we're going to just briefly touch on. Some of them have a little bit of video footage attached to them. Uh, prior to introducing them, I'll probably give you the problem that we faced, how that came about. The solutions we came up with will be on the videos or we'll discuss them and then move on to the next. In Tasmania, this is um, just a picture of the size problem that's down there. I don't know with Gordon Paul and a few people are here from Tassie. There's a, a slide down into the bottom of the swamp area there for the visitors to get to. Um, the dead wood and defect in this tree uh, was to the point that I, I was up the tree to do the dead wooding and make it safe over this slide and receiving area. Um, I could not see any way of even progressing from the trunk, even at a small distance onto any of the limbs. It was that fragile. So I came out of that tree with my tail between my legs went to my supervisor and said, I just can't do anything. The question that comes to me from a job like that is, the slide was built under this tree, it didn't deteriorate overnight. Um, so from a planning perspective, to spend a couple of million dollars putting in the uh, infrastructure, only to have someone come and fall it later, has just removed some of the essence and feel of the forest that people want to visit. The tree we're going to look at down in the, in the Tarkine Forest, uh, Dismal, is this one here. Uh, we're often supplied with um, tomograph picus at the base of the tree and everyone knows that that's just one slice of the tree and if it's a you know, 60 metre tree, um, what's to say what's happening up at 10, 50, 100 feet or 150 feet? So a lot of that has to be visual uh, cues for people making those plans. This one here, I'm not going to uh, pretend to read you all those uh, statistics, but it gives you an idea of what is at that particular point. The problem with uh, this particular tree is it had to come out because of how much defect was above it. And what I'd like to do is just have a look at that. Uh, for the practitioners here, there's probably a little bit in there for the comms between ground and uh, guys climbing, a um, bit of the rope work and stuff. But for all of us, there's an opportunity to see the defect that was glaring. So this is over the top of a boardwalk. 
So you see the, the uh, defect right up the uh, tree there. That continues into the crown and keeps going. And as the film keeps going, you'll actually get a good look at, you know, just how bad it is. The reason I've decided to talk about this, this topic is that I'm forever faced with this sort of stuff up the tree and I'm there because often it's the last line of, uh, or last option to get these things down and leave the infrastructure in place. I often find myself asking, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> That's a fact. Um, maybe a pair of binoculars may have indicated that something maybe could have been felled before we even built the stuff and we wouldn't have to take these sort of um, ends to get jobs done. But you, there's the defect in the tree and we've got to climb above this and rope it all out. <laughs> it was... <laughs> that was said at the time. <laughs> A good arborist could save it. So what we're doing is letting it run down. So, it... so we're really treading on a fine grey line there. If this thing doesn't run down, it's liable to tear the top off the tree. So my communications and coordination and trust in my ground crew and vice versa is right up there. So by... <laughs> by letting it run down, of course, it just softens the load on our high point and... But you can see the defect by looking down. And whenever you finish these sort of jobs, it's a, it's a, a great relief. So Gus was assisted on the ground by Rob Murphy and his crew. I think they were up the back there somewhere. Always polite, see. So for some planners, of course, this is probably the first opportunity you've had to be in the tree with me. So trust me, I'd like to drag some planners up the tree with me sometimes to, you know, enjoy the view. <laughs> you can see the straps I've put on there to hold it together. It's to reduce the um, ability for it to to get fat and collapse. Okay, next one here, we'll just move on, is at the Tahoon Airwalk. This is down in the south west Tasmania as well. Um, the picture there is the second tree we removed down there. <clears throat> these cases are on these trees, just stags, and they're rotten and split, and we need the straps to hold them together um, because the cases are all oozing and moving and flopping around. I won't go into it all, but we've got braces on the thing trying to read, monitor the leans on the trees. This one's up against the um, one of the viewing platforms down there and they were measuring it, getting closer and closer to the platform and that was at about the 80-foot height mark where the platform is. So it's obviously coming out of the ground slowly. Um, we are asked to go in there and get the tree down. As I say, this is the second one. The first one we used, I went down there to quote the job. <laughs> Bearing in mind this is the Tahoon Airwalk, they've probably spent $3 million, was it? $3 million to make and it's only been in there a few years and they looked around and said, gosh, these are dangerous, we've got to do something about them. Um, and of course, after the uh, Airwalk has been constructed, the, the vegetation now has recovered from all those works and is growing back and what they don't want damaged is the vegetation, including the um, expensive boardwalk. <coughs> so we've covered most of those points. Um, there was no high point for the climber. It is one of the icon tourist destinations in probably Australia. 
So the, uh, the thought of closing it up or having to take it apart was um, one of the lesser uh, uh, options they wanted to take. We had to brace the tree because uh, the, this is the um, picus for the base of the tree and uh, according to that there was 12% oh, wood holding the tree up on the compression side and it was a fairly big lean on it. So with 12% wood holding the tree up and nothing on the high side with a big lean and it, the boardwalk when this video runs is at say uh, 90 feet, this tree towers well above that. When I quoted the job, I went down there to look at it and I thought, I oh, know what I'll do, I'll climb the tree and just see how bad this defect is. I'll get a bit of a sneak preview so I know what I'm up for. I didn't even get 30% of the way up the tree. It only just uh, got to sort of around the boardwalk height when I was um, too chicken to go any higher. The sound and feel of the tree, the big splits I could put my arms into there. I mean, and I still had, you know, 150, 180 feet of tree to do. So I wasn't even sure how I was going to do the job. And the guys, the, the uh, architects that designed it and the planners that left that tree were in my thoughts for quite some time. <laughs> but we did come up with a system. We actually put a dynamometer on the base of the tree, which is a load cell, and we loaded up a very low stretch line to it where we we're safe to hook up and protected that stag from wanting to go any further. I then fired a, another line from the boardwalk over the uh, outside dead limbs on the tree and ran them to the ground onto a very large builder's hurdle and put a plumb bob on it. So I could actually read exactly what the top of the tree was doing when I was climbing, ascending, mucking around, taking weight off. So we had an idea of whether the load was increasing or decreasing and whether the head of the tree was uh, advancing or recoiling. So it was actually a very good insight. So. Uh, the more nervous I got, the more times I called out for intel, you know, be, how's that going down there? Tell me more about that. But that was the only reason I was able to progress up the tree and it took me two days to get to the top. So there's the lean of the tree there. You can see it leaning to the, to the right. And obviously it's been broken off some time ago. Here's the very elaborate um, and correctly weighted plumb bob. And so you can see by Grasping that with a winch, we can now load it up and read off things. And I've got all the readouts for um, what changed, if anything, um, how it behaved overnight when we left it on the, on the uh, device. It would actually recoil a bit overnight and this sort of stuff. That plumb bob's probably 200 feet long. So it gives you the nature of where we are. And you can see that that boardwalk below is 90 feet off the ground. And I'm actually over the top of the boardwalk where I'm working at that point. Okay, so imagine what I'm thinking around these sort of positions in the tree. Um, these things have to run down a bit and even slapping the tree as much as this does is a bit unnerving because it actually um, projects the uh, vibration straight through to where I am. The tree was moving like a half-sunk ship. It really wasn't behaving at all. It was really wonky. So as you go down the trunk, we'll see what I was feeling through my gaffs when I was climbing. You can see the thing just falls apart. You can just, I'd slice through those and I'd pull it out in 50 bits plus all the stuff. So hence that's why we had to strap it together because the actual hard case was what held the, all its gizzards in there, you know. I actually said to the uh, Tasmanian Forestry when I finished that job, I said, don't call me for another, you know, 12 months. I don't want to see another one of these trees. 
and uh, less than six months later they had the second one for me. I just about needed therapy at the time. <laughs> six cups of coffee in the morning, look at me go. <laughs> but it is an insight to what, what sort of uh, stuff we leave up there and um, obviously to lift part of the air walk out was a major operation for them. That's just coming out as powder and as long as you break the crust open you can get the, the insides out. If you look carefully, even when it's in fast motion, you see the tree actually wobbling and misbehaving. It's not behaving like a normal trunk of a tree that's had its head taken off. Uh, not much, this, this stuff doesn't blunt terribly much. So when this comes off, if you have a close look at the actual trunk of the tree as we're loading it up, I've got it all cut off. We've got to pull it ever so gently because if we pull it too hard, we'll pull it off at the ground. And when it goes back after it recoils, it sits onto my safety line on the yellow line below me. That's what's holding it up. So it comes forward. The guys on the ground are ever so gentle when they pull it off. And then when it recoils, it'll sit back on my zero stretch line or 1% boink and misses the line on the way down. So that, they're the sort of things we have to, you know, weigh up and do. And again, my ground crew is ever so important, you know. Okay, this is um, post fires. We don't have any video footage of the Black Saturday's fires. We purposely didn't take any. There was too much misery around the place to be starting to run cameras. But this would be a mature ash that, um, even though it was a cool burn, it had killed the tree and it's up right alongside, you can see the Armco railing up the top there. It's right on the top of Dom Dom. So the um, Vic Rose wanted that felled. So even on a cool burn, some of the trees that have a lot of defect, it'll run up that defect and kill the tree anyhow. So here's the area burnt in the Black Saturday fires. You can see in the central one, middle of Victoria there, those areas are generally in the alpine regions, in that forest, in the high altitude forest that I was talking about. So it's the ash generally that burns. And then of course, <clears throat> through the King Lake and that sort of an area, there's a lot of mixed species stuff in the lower areas. This is just a, a map of what was burnt in 1939. So the 39 fires were a huge uh, damaging set of fires. And even as a logger, we were logging 39 region the whole time I was in the forest and they have been for many years, and they're still logging it now. So all the age of the mountain ash or the altitude forest is measured in when it was burnt to the ground. So it's that 39 regen we're logging. When I was logging, we'd find some 26 regen, and we'd find some 08 regen. And obviously since uh, the 83 fires, there's, and that's the uh, Black uh, Friday, there's 83 regen now coming on, and in 60 years' time, they'll be harvestable, harvestable timber. But you can see how far that was uh, that went. There's three levels of cleanup after the fire, and um, Jeff here was in charge of quite a bit of it uh, up out of Murrindindi. There's short-term cleanup, which is more your infrastructure and getting things into to assist the cleanup and getting people's lives back into order. The medium-term is stuff around housing and that sort of stuff. The long-term is the stuff when everyone starts to get back to their normal lives is often forgotten, and comes to bite people later on. So here we've got a picture up at Falls Creek. This is an area probably, oh, well, halfway between Sydney and Melbourne. We're working up there. What you see there, that grey tinge through the whole forest is the dead standing alpine ash, the delicatensis. Up higher, the mangy looking stuff up higher is your snow gums. And then above that will be no, it's above the snow line. So if you've got roadways and uh, transmission lines and other things through these forests, now we've got dead trees standing there. If you don't do something 
in the, in the short term, your long-term fixes become more difficult. So what happens is we go up there for the um, line clearance and we've got to, uh, on the Southern Hydro, we're actually being asked to move, you know, eight to 10,000 of these trees at a time. So that's a major falling operation. The trouble is the trees are so rotten and defective that as you're putting your saw cuts in to start falling these trees, there's pieces of limbs coming down. You've got to keep looking up. You do the whole operation looking up in the air. I would rather that we went in not long after the fires and had a really easy time of it. We'd be able to walk between the trees because you can imagine five years down the track, we've got regen so tight you cannot walk through it. You have to cut your way tree to tree. That makes our job a lot harder. You haven't got the options for escape routes. You've got to go and cut those as well. Whereas post-fire, of course, we can move around the forest very easily. We get black, but you can move around. So there's, this picture here just gives you an example of one span of distribution line. We probably took out 400 alpine ash and the machine is just pushing it off the easement. Um, firewood only there, most of it. Uh, probably pulp some of it, but it, because it runs in a national park, you're not allowed to take forest produce out of a national park. So for a logging perspective, it's a crying shame to see the waste. You know, there's only so much habitat I believe you need. And in some areas after we've finished, um, the wall of wood we leave behind, of course, if it got burning, even on a cool burn, would be enough just about to melt the conductors at some distance and would burn for weeks. So moving away from that now, here we are into um, one of Jeff's favourite places um, is Grant's Picnic Ground at Daniel Ranges. I've probably done work in this picnic ground for 25 years. I've almost got every tree, but it's taken me that long to get around to them to have it done one at a time or up to you know some larger numbers. But what's happening is uh, so a flood of money came to the uh, parks. They've got a main road running along one side. I think they've got. 15 or 20 Greyhound buses turn up 9 o'clock every day. So they put uh, asphalt car parks in, the gas barbecues, the picnic tables. It has a huge visitation. So they put all that infrastructure in and then looked up at the trees and decided that um, there was a lot of hazardous trees there, which we knew, but then we had to dodge all that infrastructure, which had only just been put in. It just seemed a crying shame to me. With the next clip we're looking at, what we're asked to do as a, as a contractor is they come to us and say, well, we've got a bit of money to spend. We want to take these four uh, large mountain ash out of the front driveway of this picnic ground, but we don't want to interfere too much with the traffic and the vegetation. So what it, what it does to me is it makes me start thinking about other ways that I can do the job. So we come up with a plan that we'd um, have the traffic control shut the road off periodically would hang the mountain ash trees upside down on slings in big, large chunks. That means when the greyhound buses turned up, they could drive in because all the action had finished and we'd simply lift those off with the crane and put them behind the chipper and move the wood off. And so that's what we did. So these sort of opportunities are, are great for us because we get to think around it. However, it would have been so much easier to just fall the whole lot, all the rubbish, and just deal with them with a 25 tonne excavator and put them on trucks and it'd be all gone for a fraction of the price. So let's have a look at this one. So where I can in these things, to get around these trees um, for efficiency, sometimes the towers are a far better option. You can reach out and move around, go tree to tree. I think this one's a 55 metre. 
Now, a couple of them could be lowered down, but after that, at the base of that tree is the gas mains, the water pipes, fences, all there. So what we did, this is where we hung, hung them all off. You can see it's starting to look like a decorated Christmas tree. Whereas we did these one at a time and then lifted them down, the crane would always be in danger of being under the, under the action. And of course, dropping a, even a small limb or a bit of shrapnel on the crane operator would be not acceptable. So that's ahead of him off. And you can see now I've got some static lifts for the crane. Traffic can go along the road as normal. Buses can come in and it's just not an issue. There's no danger to anyone. So the interference with the buses was tick, no problems, they could come in. People visiting the place can walk past our work site, which is guarded. We can go about our job. Just in that one look down there, you would have seen all the asphalt drives and what's going on. And you can see they're rather large limbs, like they're, they're not your garden variety. So what happens here is the crane just picks it up. So we've got a static lift. I take the sling off the tree. And it's his to um, put behind the um, guys. Chaos there. They didn't want any interference with their trade. There's a few there. So I think it was one day for the three trees we did. A whole lot was lowered down, including trunks, and gone. So of course our client is looking for that sort of efficiency because I'm not on the job any longer than they want me to be. This is a bit of a favourite, but again, this is a classic, classic for what we're talking about, about planning into a, into a forest situation. We're encouraging visitation to come into, say, Alinda Falls. The guys did the right thing. They Beautiful falls there. People are using it. Let's manage the visitation. We'll build a um, viewing platform and staircase down to it. Build their platform. And of course they've got a mature ash, which I don't know how it was still standing, and hanging right over the top of the viewing platform. You know, it would have been such a simple job to do before they built the platform. So what we ended up coming up with, well, the problem was that you could not be on this tree safely to do the lowering. It just, no way, well I couldn't. They just don't make enough Valium for this sort of job. So I worked out a way of severing limbs off, catching them on the rope and then lowering them back to the ground. So that's what we came up with, cutting the limbs with the explosives. So there's their beautiful trickle of water. The brand new viewing platform. And the offending tree. So the big limb there, that was just on three tonne of limb. So it was a major thing to drop onto, onto a rope. And you could have got into that tree, you know, four blokes halfway up, we could have got into that tree and played cards. It was that hollow and rotten. And as you come up, that's as high as I'd dare go. That was just shell wood. And there's the beehive. And so it goes on. So there were some major issues with even working on the tree. And for those that haven't seen it, this is, this is the easiest way to get up these trees. If you've got a line up there, you can motor on above all those debris and hassle and tangles and you attack them from the high side. You can see the size of the limbs, you know, significant. I learned, I learned a fair bit up there. I, I actually tried to bite off more than I could chew. The first shot doesn't go as well as it ought to, but it doesn't really matter because I wasn't on it. That was a minor success. 
Well, I didn't. It was actually I didn't realise. Well, we didn't know then, but we'd notified, you know, because of of the time after all the stuff. Well, this was a success. It was after all the 9/11 stuff, and we decided, you know, notify police and all that sort of business because it was going to be loud. We knew that. Um, but no one told the Calorama Primary School that had just finished their anti-terrorist training with their pupils. <laughs> so apparently there was classrooms full of students and teachers on the floor. We didn't find out until later, but anyway. That was the second hit on that and it just, come, just comes off so that the weight eventually works it off. The problem was protecting those ropes from the blast, which is the, which is the inventive side of it. So chasing this part off, I actually... They actually wanted the tree at 80 feet high for habitat. So I had to come down to about 80 feet. And I found the most solid piece of wood I could find. And um, my chainsaw just couldn't cut fast enough. I had a, a two to one over the creek pulling the thing. And it was tearing apart as I was doing it. So we got it off. Three months later, they came to me and said, can you fall the rest of the stump? It looks odd. Where's those planters? <laughs> now, I didn't need that amount of stress on that. OK, moving on. Just touching on probably what is obvious to everyone, but the considerations if we're looking at planning infrastructure to go into a forest, and we're not talking about stuff where something's in place and trees have grown or declined, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a clean slate where what considerations should we have? We need to consider what stage the forest life cycle's at. If the forest is about to decline or has some major issues in particular trees or the forest itself, the forest health, that ought to be taken into consideration before we start spending millions of dollars. And obviously that includes how long it takes, you know, uh, the tree to normally develop or decline. So it needs an understanding of the forest in Australia, the native forest. The consequence of failure. If we're going to build a, a gathering area at the, you know, somewhere in the forest and there's a major tree above it, the consequence of a failure is something we're meant to take into place at the time of planning rather than the uh, hazard check of the hazards of the forest after you've built it. And the most important one for me is that if a removal was required, how would the removal be done? If planners could just think about that part and they look at it and go, well, I've got no idea how someone's going to remove that tree if we have to, maybe that's the time to address it, not after you build it. That conundrum is the first question, should the planning or development take place at all? In some cases, I would suggest, no, it should not. You shouldn't put development into an area uh, where you're going to have to remove everything around it to make it safe enough to use that development. The aesthetics can be, can be removed from the treescape or the uh, forest uh, or the residential area by the very fact you put it in there. The uh, future of the forest that you're actually at, um, putting the infrastructure in or planning for is probably what we really need to consider in this. Obviously, I get a great time out of being given uh, really ordinary jobs to do and plan and think around it. I'm basically given a licence to do as I please in some cases. But I'm, I'm disappointed sometimes when infrastructure goes into a forest that I know will remove exactly why people have gone there. In the urban forests, and this is where we've got our urban sprawl, looking for that tree change, the Daniel Ranges is, is one of those such places. I would suggest that those elements that are listed below are some of the considerations that are taken into place. 
I wonder about who actually takes responsibility when planners in council force people wanting to build in a certain quarter acre block in Mountain Ash Forest with 60 metre trees to only allow them to remove enough trees to put the house in place with all this other defect and problem, they're not generally there to take responsibility after. They come along with their, their um, assessment book later to decide whether the trees ought to come out as a safety measure for the residents in the house well after the fact. Maybe they need to go there first and look at, well, what are we actually going to do this forest? Quarter acre blocks are probably not what's ideal in a mountain ash forest. That's about it for the presentation. If there's questions or some discussion you want to pick up on. This concludes Angus and Graham McMahon's presentation on planning maintenance, not removals. If you would like to learn more about tree maintenance and removal, you can find additional materials at the ISA Online Learning Center and Web Store, including the online course Safety, Climbing, and Rigging. If you would like to receive CEUs for today's talk, the unlock code for this quiz is SA8926. Again, SA8926. If you have other topics that you would like us to provide podcasts for, please feel free to contact Luana Vargas, the producer of this series, at the ISA office in Champaign, Illinois, or me, Tom Smiley, at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. Thank you for listening to this episode, which was brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country, trees you know we can, work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.